This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome to this very special bonus episode of The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster Sam Baker. I'm delighted to welcome a very special guest, the award-winning author of 10 best-selling novels, Barbara Kingsolver. Now, every so often a book comes along that you want to press into the hands of everybody you meet. For me, Demon Copperhead is one of those books. It's a reimagining of the Dickens classic David Copperfield, translated to the Appalachian Mountains in the midst of the opioid crisis. It's funny, it's furious, and its hero, Demon, is a character you will never, ever forget. I'm not the only one who thinks so. Earlier this year, Barbara was awarded a Pulitzer Prize, and it's also shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction. She's been shortlisted for that three times before, and won for her novel The Lacuna. But she may have won it again by the time you hear this. Who knows? So, it feels really wonderful to get to be this age, this place, doing what I love so much, and connecting with people in a way that 11-year-old Barbara never never imagined in her wildest dreams. Earlier this month, while she was on tour, Barbara foolishly let me into her Edinburgh hotel room to tell me how growing up weird, bookish and poor shaped her and how she discovered she was a so-called hillbilly. We also discussed being an introvert in an extrovert world, finding love second time around, not winning the jackpot in the mothering department and why life gets better with every decade that passes. As an aside... If you're a packing nerd, Barbara shares her killer packing tips. And I've got to say, if you ever wanted to do a three-week holiday with just a carry-on, Barbara is your woman. You were brilliant. There was so much love in the room. It's a long time since I've been to a book event except at the festival. And there's been a queue up the road waiting to come in. You must have got used to that over the last week, but how does that feel? One doesn't get used to it. I mean, it's funny because my life is divided into such very different parts. My work life, for 98% of my working life, I'm alone, completely alone in a room with my my thoughts, with the people 
you know, and the stories inside my head. And I like solitude, obviously. Yeah, just as well. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, th- I think most novelists are introverted because that's, you know, that's where we live. That's our, that's our, our place. And so then for the other 2% of your working life to be thrust out into the world and meeting so many people and seeing my work has really become a part of their lives and you know in a really often a really important way and they want to let me know that it's um it's a shock it's really it's a real shock to the system and hard in some ways to to meet that expectation to absorb all of that emotion and and gratitude and also like pain you know i mean people are telling me your book was medicine for some some great ache in my life you know just to be present to all that is very hard work and it's a completely different kind of work uh than what i usually do and when it's all done i feel so thankful that i got to do it because it reminds me that, you know, now I'm going back into that quiet place, but I'm not really alone in that room. This is a huge conversation I'm having. And it just, it's a good thing for me to take that back into the room. Both the the love, sort of the rewarding sense of it that, yes, I am doing this for good reason. And also the responsibility of it, that people do need what I'm doing. It's good to feel valued, isn't it? After that intense period with all those people kind of like wanting a piece of you a bit, do you get introvert burnout? Every day, because yeah. that's what it what it means to be an introvert is not that you dislike people at all. It's that being with people requires energy. It, ta- yeah, it it's takes draining, it's draining. It? it takes energy from you. And um yeah, it's it is physical and psychic work to be with people, no matter who they are, even my own family. You know, if I'm at a family reunion, there comes a point where I have to go find a quiet place and put a pillow over my head. So that's book tour. I go out and I meet my public and then I really do have to go back to a hotel room and put those pillows over my head. I just need to cocoon because it is such intense exposure and I have to recover every day. Uh, in order to be ready to go and do it again. Sometimes I have to cocoon twice a day. (laughs) (laughs) No, I get that totally. I think it took me a long time to understand that if you're an introvert, being around people, like you say, even people you love, it takes it out of you. Whereas if you're an extrovert, being around people puts it in. Exactly. That's, it's as simple as that. And it's, it's hard to explain it without sounding mean um (laughs) but it's just how we're made it's how we're born and it cannot change i was that shy kid growing up who always sat at the back of the classroom and never spoke and always felt like that was wrong of me i was you know i was the wrong kind of person because that's how people talk they say barbara needs to bring herself out of her shell barbara needs to you know, it's a it's like a failure to be shy, uh, to be that person who just watches, would rather watch than participate. 
Um, there's a wonderful book called Quiet by Susan Cain. Yes, you know it? brilliant. Isn't it? My daughter, my older daughter, Camille, we're all introverts and it's inherited. It's genetic. You are born this way. If you have introverted parents, you will be a, an introvert. Is Stephen an introvert? Because I just bumped into Stephen leaving your hotel room and he seemed very... He's an extrovert. Yeah, very yeah, like... Very Hi. much. He's, yeah. And it's such a good marriage because, you know, if I were married to someone like me, we would never go out. Yes. He gets me out, you know, and I say, no, no. And then I'm glad I did. You know, it's a really good balance in our relationship. But back to that book, Camille, my daughter, Camille read it and then she handed it to me and said mom read this it's about us and it will help you forgive yourself that was like the simplest way to put it and she was so right it was so helpful to understand this isn't something I'm doing this is who I am and your whole life long it's not going to change and American culture especially I think is very anti-introvert the business model is get everybody in a room and brainstorm and even you know businesses are set yeah Yeah. hustle businesses are set up that way and problem solving uh you know think tanks are set up that way and we quiet people have a whole different way of working well i've worked it out i have a job where i get to sit (laughs) and that's my way of problem solving is to you know write a novel but um Another thing that I learned from that book is that introversion, as we were saying, that it really just has to do with whether you gain energy from being around people or you lose energy. You have to give energy to the project of being with people. That will never change, but shyness can be changed. Mm. And I used to be shy, and now obviously yeah. I'm not. Being unshy is something you can learn, like playing the piano or playing tennis. You learn it with practice. And I've had a lot of practice at speaking, you know, to large halls and, and really opening myself to people, you know, being mm. in a weird way, fairly intimate with large groups of people because I've practiced it. I've learned how to do it. And so people see that and they say, oh, no, you can't. You're not introverted. Um, But that's different. You can be an introverted public speaker. The difference is what you do afterwards. Yeah. (laughs) The bed, the pillows over the head. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's it. I, I totally get that. Totally. I mean, you were talking about when you were a little girl, you know, at school and like not speaking up enough. Um, I'd like to talk about your childhood because your childhood is so integral to Demon Copperhead, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? It's so yeah. Yeah, your, there's more uh, your Appalachian-ness. Thing. Yeah, there's more of me in Demon than most people would probably imagine. I could write that character because I have been bullied. I was a kid in school who didn't fit in, didn't have the right clothes. It was a peculiar situation. We only wore hand-me-downs. The town kids, who's, well, it's a tiny town, 1,500 people in my town. But even at that, there was a class distinction between the town kids whose parents, you know, owned the grocery store or the drugstore or whatever, and the rural kids who rode the bus and got to school with mud on our shoes. It was just a very clear class distinction, and there was no dating across that line, really seriously. Really? It was rare even for... For there to be friendships across this line. So I was one of the country kids and I was shy and I was weird. I was bookish. 
I liked studying and learning stuff in a culture that really didn't value that, especially for boys, but even for girls. Being the teacher's pet, being the smart one, did not make you popular. I didn't fit in, so I did get bullied quite a lot. And With the other girls. <laughs> meanest. Yeah. Sheesh. In, yeah, like starting in fifth, sixth grade, just they made sure I knew what a mess I was. Yeah. Because I was that kid at school too. No friends, standing on the edge of the playground, you know. How old's fifth or sixth grade? Uh, yeah, you're eight, like 11. 11, 12. Yeah, that's when it. That's when it really starts to happen. Just just puberty is when girls start getting really like socially adept at, you know, letting each other know who's in and who's out. It's a primate thing. I mean, monkeys do it, too. Yeah, part yeah. Of, it is. It's part yeah. of our development. That's especially for females to just really learn a lot about social capital and kind of forming your alliances to give you power and advantage. Yeah. I didn't understand that at that time, no, but, that, that's, but now I do. That's the trouble, <laughs> As isn't it? As a biologist, it? I can see what was going on. Yeah, that doesn't help when you're like 11, does no. it? What was your puberty experience like? Scary, because I didn't... Well, I had a mother who didn't tell me anything, anything at all. We just, she just wouldn't talk about stuff like that. So <laughs> I went to my brother for information. He was two years older, and bless his heart. I mean, he did his best, but he didn't yeah. know anything either. He was <laughs> oh, a God great... Love him. He was... Yeah, I'm still very close to my brother. My brother has been my lifelong best friend. And we survived together. We negotiated it. We lived out in the country. We didn't have playmates, you know, that I mean, we were a mile from any other family with kids our age. So we were each other's companion in playing in the woods, collecting pets. You know, we would catch animals and figure out how to keep them in the house and um, read. We would just take on projects together. Like we... <laughs> We just used the materials at hand. We had an Encyclopedia Britannica. You know, that whole shelf of books was in the house. Who knows where it came from? It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. At that kind of time, so many people had those. Yeah. Bought them on the doorstep or maybe picked them up. Yeah. Where did they come from? Yeah. Yeah. But who knows? But that was all of knowledge in one place. So we made a deal where we would read them all. I started at A and he started at Z. And we worked towards the middle. And we figured by the time we got to M and N, between us we would know everything yeah, yeah so that's that's the kind of stuff we did we tried reading the bible together we were not a particularly churchy family but it was a churchy culture and place and we didn't really know much about the bible so we thought oh we should read this yeah. and so we read it aloud to each other and I mean, for little kids, I was probably nine and he was 11. It's horrifying. I mean, it's people, you know, like men sleeping with their daughters or using them as, you know, we figured this out, using them as bargaining tools and, you know, a lot of slaying with jawbones of asses. It was horrifying. We did. We thought we're not getting the point of this. This is <laughs> this. I think we're gonna. Maybe ban- you were. Ban- maybe we were. Well, Old Testament is pretty fierce, and naturally, that's where you're gonna start. But um, we were also already little scientists, so you know this whole thing of the whole world created in seven days—that's baloney. You know, yeah, we yeah. just didn't buy it. So 
Yeah, that was our that was our attempt to become uh, <laughs> churched, <laughs> and, and it failed badly. So you're a little scientist, but you were also really good at music, weren't you? Uh-huh. And now you are a global best-selling writer. So how <laughs> how did the little scientist make that journey? Well, how long you got? I suppose. Uh, yeah, yeah, I still feel like I'm the same me I've always been. I'm just a lot less shy, but I'm interested in the same things. I just was always interested in everything. I suppose wanting to read the entire Encyclopedia Britannica at age 11 pretty much sums it up. <laughs> I music was Music was just because of culture. I come from a place where people make music, a place in time. It's not so true now. Uh, and that's sad. I think kids grow up now because they have such easy access to, to music that even, you know, country kids get their music from their phones and they feel like you have to be a professional to do it. But Appalachian culture, it's a culture of makers. It's a really resourceful culture. So, you know, women make quilts and they make food and they make clothes and people make their own music. And it was really common, you know, for people to get together and play music. That was something that happened in my childhood. And um, I just played an instrument. We had a band at school and I played the clarinet and I played the piano. We had a piano at home and I begged to learn from a really early age. I just wanted to own that piano, own it, you know, like with my hands. And so, yeah, I started taking piano lessons from Miss Edith, the lady in the town, (laughs) the elderly lady in the town who taught me everything wrong. And, um, (laughs) but you know, at least I learned to read music and the basics. And then uh, somehow there was a, like a substitute, the deficits in the school system were just, were vast. We just really had so few resources in the school, but there were several times when some substitute would come in from the city for like a week and they would always find me one of them was math she said wow you're in seventh grade and I think you're really smart but your your math is like third grade level can I help here and of course I was really embarrassed and I said well sure I wasn't different from anyone in the class but somehow she picked me out and she gave me these texts and she like gave me a little bit of special help and bam I figured out algebra and um Um, A similar thing happened with music. It was this music teacher who, I don't know how, just singled me out and said, come upstairs, up in the attic of this old creaky school, there was a piano. And she said, play some things for me. And then she said, I'll never forget this. She said, you are almost ruined beyond repair, but I think I can fix you. I can save you. And Oh, wow. And... I felt so shamed, but also so excited. I was like, okay, save me. Somebody's coming to fix me. She, yeah. I mean, technically I was doing everything wrong. That was uh, seventh grade. And so she started coming for a period of time that she had giving me lessons. And I got so much better and I got so much intense pleasure from this that she persuaded my mom. I mean, this was a great kindness from my mom who usually didn't have time for very much. But she drove me to Lexington, a city an hour away, to a good teacher. 
And, you know, that was what got me through high school as a lonely misfit kid. I just threw myself into piano and I met other people. My first boyfriend was also a piano player. You know, I would be in these groups of kids who were accomplished at something, who didn't have to hide their intelligence or their passion or their, you know, or their um, skills. And that was really, that did save me. So I got to, I got to college on a music scholarship, but really I just wanted to get to college and I wanted to take classes in everything. I was that kid who wants to major in everything. Anthropology. Wow. I could just I could go on with that forever. Or, you know, evolutionary biology. Yes. Um, I, I loved my literature class, class as maybe I got to take two. But pretty early on, I switched over from music, which was not going to be a practical major, to the practical major of biology because I figured I'm going to have to have a job when this is all done. I and want it's not to. going to be concert pianist. And it absolutely is not. No, <laughs> I, I, you know, I knew that. And I... You know, through all this, I loved reading and writing so much. But that's just the writing was very private. I just I just wrote poems and stories that I didn't show to anybody. But that compulsion to just keep learning new things and follow every new thing down, you know, down the long alley to enlightenment, that's being a novelist. I I mean, I finally found the perfect job. For me. (laughs) Yeah, 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 no, totally. It's that moment, isn't it, when as a lonely kid, a kid who has to pretend not to be clever, when you don't have to pretend anymore, when you meet other people and you... You don't have to be quiet at the back of the class because it's like you'll be told off by the teacher if you're quiet at the back of the class, but you'll be told off by the other kids if you say you know the answer. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that pretty much sums up my entire (laughs) school experience. It was miserable, actually. I was now looking back. Well, I was a very unhappy kid and, you know, probably depressed. But, you know, nobody had time to notice stuff like that. But the remedy for me was reading. I just would disappear into books because that gave me access to other lives. When you got to college in Indiana on a scholarship, did you feel like I've arrived, I found my people or did you meet a whole new type of adversity yes and yes I mean (laughs) yeah yeah, initially I mean I was I was thinking my people are out there I was thinking you know college I mean that's why I worked so hard to get to go to college because almost nobody did and I was really on my own I mean now and even then probably in other schools there were counselors who would help you sign up for the tests I had to figure all that out for myself and drive myself to take the SATs and stuff but I really really wanted to go thinking I would find my tribe so it was so disappointing that once I got there I was being ridiculed again this time for being a hillbilly and that I never thought about being a hillbilly or you know a Kentuckian until I went to college and everybody laughed at the way I said certain words well all words 
And my friends gave me a, this thing. It was like a Hoosier passport that allowed a limited number of Kentuckians to cross the river into Indiana. You know, just, you know, and I laughed. <laughs> but that's so mean. Um, but they didn't think it was mean. It's because so rude. Yeah, right? But it was so standard to laugh at hillbillies that I just thought, okay, I I really I really am a joke. I mean, I just kind of accepted it uh, and tried to pass. I tried to, you know, I started changing my diction and started trying to be a more cosmopolitan person. Whatever I thought that was, yeah, was you know, like, well, like, yeah, that yeah, yeah, whatever the heck that meant, which you know meant something I imagined from from books I'd read, and I was academically completely lost because you know I'd had such poor schooling. I didn't have, you know, I was a good writer because I had read so many books. I knew how to do that, but I didn't know the proper way to do footnotes in a term paper and all that. So I had to be that same kid who read the encyclopedia. I just, I've always been an autodidact and I just kicked into high gear and spent a lot of time in the library quietly catching up. And I mean, the main thing I learned in college was how to teach myself what I, whatever it is I'm missing. And that too is the skill of a novelist. And Mm -hmm. I think the good thing about that, of always having been self-taught, most things that I know I taught myself, is that (laughs) I have probably a ludicrous amount of confidence when I go into a subject. I just think, oh, well, I don't know anything about, you know, I'm going to create, you know, a character who's a, who teaches political science. I don't know anything about that, but I can learn all about, you know, I can, Mm. when you write a novel, you have to know everything that your characters know. You can't just write, and then he said something very clever about economics. You have to know (laughs) what he said, and it has to be right, because somebody reading you will know if you're wrong, and they will tell you. So, yeah. They so will, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) they so will. So, uh you know, when I step back and look at it, I think that's so audacious that I think that I can just learn everything I need to know to create these, you know, these novels about real things in the world with with people who know a lot of real things. But I just know I can do it. Um, so, and I did, I did in time. Uh, I mean, for the happy ending, I found good friends in college. I found the kind of friends who you stay up with all night talking about Toynbee or, you know, you know, or politics or history or, or Chaucer or whatever, you know, I just, I found those good friends and I felt for the first time like someone who belonged to a group. Well, you went to college and then you did that kind of young person thing, didn't you, of traveling and ended up in Tucson. What was it that made you go back to Appalachia, where you had not been that happy as a child. Right. Yeah, I thought, I'm getting out of here. And then once I did, (laughs) I thought, oh, nobody thinks that's a good place to be. And, um, you know, and I... I loved my adventures. I still do. I love to travel. I love to see the world. I loved, you know, moving around Europe, owning nothing more than what would fit in my backpack and doing these, you know, hand to mouth jobs just to learn 
language. I love, I love languages. I loved learning French. I learned Greek. I learned Spanish. So I love those experiences. And then I had to come back to the States at some point because I was living in France and it was getting very difficult. That was in the late end of the 70s. It was getting hard to keep a work permit. Things were starting to change as far as that. So I had to come back to the States and I chose Tucson just on a whim. You know, I thought, I'll try out the West. That sounds interesting. And then I kind of got stuck there because of, I was at that age where life happens to you. You know, you get a job and then you get a, a boyfriend who turns into, you know, your partner and then you get a house and then you get kids. And so I had this life in Tucson. There was, you know, a very good life. I loved the people I met. I was learning. I became a politicized person there living close to the border of Mexico. I just learned a whole a whole new way of understanding the, the world and what, you know, one nation will do to another. So it was a really good time for sort of growing up, but it never felt like home. I missed the landscape of my childhood. I just ached for trees, for green trees and grass and mossy creeks and ferns, just that landscape. And see, in childhood, all my happy time was spent in the woods and in the fields playing with my brother. That was the joy of childhood. And I think we imprint on the landscapes of our childhood in such a way that nothing else ever looks quite right. Mm. And Honestly, Tucson, the desert, as interesting and dramatic as it is, felt to me like a place that didn't want me living there. There's not enough water. There are not enough resources there. You cannot grow enough food in the desert to support the city of Tucson. It increasingly felt immoral for me to stay there. And I knew I had to get back to Appalachia. Whenever I did, there was something in me that just as soon as I would see those those mountains and those forests, something in me just let out its breath. And I never felt at home until I was back there. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. I couldn't go back to the little town where I was so unhappy and I would not raise my children there. Um, But just by coincidence, um, by, I don't know, some strange twist of fate, I got this Lila Wallace Fellowship and I, they sent me to a little college in Appalachia, Emory and Henry College, where I was meant to spend two weeks as a visiting writer. I talked to all different classes and one of them was a class taught by Professor Stephen Hopp. And we just fell for each other in a completely platonic way, I guess, because, you know, we had a very short amount of time. I didn't know if he was married. He didn't know, you know, we didn't know anything about each other's personal lives, but we just loved talking about, we had so many interests in common, music, nature, biology, everything. And so we just started this conversation that didn't end. And I went back to Tucson and we talked on the phone. Well, we did figure out that neither of us was married. And <laughs> um, we talked on the phone every night and for a year and then how to get married. So, so, but he lived on this beautiful farm in Emory, Virginia, which is geographically you know it's 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 in every way the beauty of Appalachia but it's a little town that has a college so it's different from the town where I grew up there's enough diversity my kids went to school with kids of professors who had moved there from you know Atlanta or from you know England or just the presence of the college changed the culture of the school there were enough kids there who valued education that my kids wouldn't get bullied if they wanted to go to college. Mm. So um, it was just it was just the perfect place. So yeah, when I moved to Stevens Farm, I knew I'd found heaven. I just, I don't want to live anywhere else ever again. Is that where you still yeah, live? Yeah, that's where we live. Yeah, and honestly, he saw how hard I was working. You know, I was giving a lecture every hour. He said, if you have a couple hours free this afternoon, I live on a farm. You can come out just for some farm therapy. And that was astute. And I did. And I mean, he, the house at that time, he was, it was, you know, it, it was what he could afford on a teacher's salary. So it was, you know, nothing, nothing extravagant. It was a very rundown old hundred year old farmhouse, but the place is beautiful it's this wooded hollow and it has a creek running down it and it's just you know full of bird song and full of life and really I mean I fell in love with the farm so the Jane Austen version of the story would be that I married him for his farm (laughs) (laughs) but it was both you got the farm too (laughs) yeah but well we had it was complicated to work out we didn't immediately move there because I had ties in Tucson that I couldn't leave. So for a number of years, it was hard because we thought we'd have to sell the 
farm and I just said that we're not going to sell the farm. What, whatever we have to do, we will do to keep it. So we rented it to a family so that we could cover the mortgage. And then for some time, we um, lived in Tucson part of the year and then there in the summers in the little tiny cabin up in the woods behind the farmhouse. We worked it out so that we could get back there. And now, now that's hard. Could you imagine ever living in a city? I have lived in cities. And this is the kind of, <laughs> this is the kind of, of city dweller I am. I have a pot of tomatoes growing on my balcony. And honestly, in Tucson, I lived in the city right downtown for a long time, but I had to have a garden in my little postage stamp backyard. And I love to visit cities, but I visit them. It's like my Apache raid. I'll go in and I'll go to the museums and I'll go to the concerts and then I come home again. It was really interesting in Demon Copperhead to write about a city from the point of view of somebody who feels really horrified and oppressed by cities. Because I think, well, you know, I think people who are born and raised in cities think that we country folk are just so missing out. And and they think we all want to be in cities. And I, you know, I can't tell you how many people have asked me, how can you live out there in the middle of nowhere without... The faintest clue that that is such a demeaning thing to say. You know, it's somewhere to you. It's It's everything to to me. It's everywhere to me. And plus, I grow food and I have water. (laughs) And neighbors whose names I know. But um, really to go inside of Demon's, Little Demon's head and show people how this looks to us, to those of us who are accustomed to, first of all, looking in the eye of every person we meet, you know, how that feels to be among people who just don't look at you, how strange that is to be in an apartment that feels like, as he calls it, the doom castle. Do you know the Duke Nukem? It's a video game. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Where you're just in this maze and every door opens to another maze and it's horrifying because you can't get out. And he says, there there was no outside anywhere because I looked because outside to him is trees and pasture with cattle and it just felt so fake to him and scary that there was nothing but people and stuff made by people and that's I mean sorry but that's how it feels to me too and Mm. I you know I'm old enough to not to panic because I know how I can get out yeah (laughs) but um it's so rare to see rural life at all in books in film I can tell you the last movie I saw about rural people about farmers and you know genuine farm life not fake farm life was called minari it was uh yes and and i think yeah and i think that only got made because it was about korean immigrants and so that was sort of like oh korean immigrants that's interesting but we don't see farm life or rural life represented in any thoughtful compassionate or even interested way And so I don't blame people for thinking we don't exist, you know, that our existences are nil. So that's, you know, that's a big part of what I have to do. Yes. How how does that feel to know that not only do a lot of people not know that, you know, this huge swathe of the country where you live not only doesn't exist, but is looked down on. Is looked down on. It's really bad. It's been bad for my whole life. And it's interesting that nearly half of the population of the U.S. does not live in cities. So 
It's half of the population and 2% at most of what we see in film and TV and books and, and newspapers. And we're all so used to that. We just accept it. But there's an immense amount of resentment and anger from rural people about how dismissed we are, about the sort of cultural condescension towards us. And I mean, it's been going on my whole life, this antipathy between rural and urban people, but it's gotten so much worse in the last decade or 15 years, I guess, because, I mean, rural people have just gotten so fed up with a government that dis dismisses and ignores them. And, you know, the economies of small towns are just like beyond despair. Opportunities are so limited. The only money going into farming is going to the giant industrial farms, not to people, not to family farms. And so people are so fed up with a government that does nothing for them. They vote for the guy who says, I'm on your side. I'm going to blow it all up. And I understand that. I mean, mm. I didn't vote for him, but I understand why my neighbors did. They feel like he hears them. So because of that, everything has gotten worse because now the urban people who already looked down on the, on the country people now feel like they can do it with impunity because they voted for this really horrible guy. Yeah, in a way, he legitimized he le what they'd been doing already. Exactly. Yeah, he legitimized their hatred or their contempt. Contempt mm. is the right word. And, you know, people will ask me when I traveled around in the U.S., you know, because I only, of course, on my book tours, only went to cities. And people ask, well, what about the MAGA thing? You know, they say with their, yeah. you know, and I have to say, let me tell you about the MAGA thing. Let me tell you how it feels to be you know, spoken of with that face you just made. We're, we're mad. We're, yeah. <laughs> we're mad and we express it in different ways. And that was not a good one because he didn't do a thing. He didn't do a thing for rural people. Um, no, and he only and cares just, about just, himself, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he doesn't represent our values. And there's also this thing of, you know, probably much like here, the people who voted for Brexit, even though it <laughs> it caused a lot of things to fall down around your ears, you don't want to say, oh, I messed up. So you'd rather say, oh, it's the French people who made it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's really hard to own a mistake on that, on that level. But some people are owning the mistake of Trump. He's not going to get elected again. Oh, fingers crossed. I know. I was yeah, say, knock, yeah knock clutching wood. wood. Yeah, yeah. Knock, knock wood. Do you feel like as you have got older, you've got braver and more outspoken and more, you know, able to stand up in a book event and go, that face you just made? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what I said last night is... Is true. I hate to disappoint people. That's just in me. I am a person who, I mean, I can disappoint people. I'm perfectly capable of it. But it's always hard for me to say, no, I'm sorry, I can't come talk to your book club. Or, you know, it just, I don't want to do that. Is that how you were brought up? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And in a rural place, in small towns and country places, 
there's a sense to it. When someone asks you to do something, there's a reciprocity to it. Yeah, you should help them. And there's going to come a time when they'll return the favor. Mm. You know, when there's this thing we do when we take somebody uh, a casserole, they always bring the dish back with a casserole in it. So that's just our tradition. And I think about that all the time with these thousands, thousands of requests I get. People ask me all the time to do things for them. You know, will you, you know, will you blurb my book? Will you talk to my club? Will you, I mean, it's amazing things that people want me to do for them. And I always think I could bake that casserole, but the dish is going to come back empty if at all. If it comes back at all. If it comes back at all. This is not, it feels wrong to me to say no, so I have to recast it. This is a new situation. So it it has gotten easier with practice, but it still will always feel wrong for me to disappoint people when they've asked something of me. But when someone is cruel or unkind, I don't hesitate to call them out. And I think I was always that kind of person. I mean, once I got out of the oppression of childhood, I I think in college, I, I created a new persona for myself. And she was very much like Angus in Demon Mm -hmm. Copperhead. I wore funny clothes. I love Angus. I do too. You know, I had always been mocked for wearing the wrong clothes, for wearing hand-me-downs. Then I got to college where a lot of the girls wore, you know, I don't know, designer things, even like designer, you know, not gowns. We're just talking like what you wear to play tennis. Just this whole new culture of clothing that I knew I was never going to understand or afford. So I went to the uh, army surplus store and bought, uh, I just got this, acquired this uniform. I got a pith helmet and um, this big green army coat that came down to my feet because it was cold. And I got known on campus as the girl in the green pith helmet. And I just <laughs> like, I just decided to make make a statement of I am not trying to look like you and I'm not trying to be you and whoever wants to talk to me they'll be my friends and so a little bit of that in your face you can't scare me with your contempt I cultivated that I got it And I kind of, I think, have been that person ever since. I don't hesitate in my work to write things that will make people uncomfortable. I don't think about it. It's things that make me uncomfortable, too. I go to the places where I think we all need to go and be a little uncomfortable and sort out, you know, what we might be doing wrong, how we might be doing this better. So I want to ask you, you are 68 Uh How does it feel to be, you know, at a point in life when women are meant to have like shuffled off and be minding their own business? (laughs) to be like at the top of your game I mean there may be more game you know maybe higher but you've just won a Pulitzer by the time this comes out we'll know whether or not you've won the women's prize for the second time (laughs) I don't want to win that one that would be bad manners to win (laughs) twice anyway I think you should stuff your southern manners on that particular (laughs) I know you're not properly southern midwestern manners Um, but how does that feel how does that feel to be at this stage in your life and to be the best you've ever been arguably 
feels fantastic. I feel very lucky to be healthy and especially to be lucky to be alive. It seems so obvious to me that a birthday is a victory, you know? I mean, what's the alternative to being 68? It's being dead. So how great is this that I get another year uh, to do what I love? And the great advantage that writers have over, let's say, athletes, fashion models, actors even, is that we trade in wisdom. We're not, thank God, selling our bodies or our strength or our, you know, the elasticity of our skin. We're selling wisdom. And that only comes with age. It's like, exactly like scar tissue. You know, you, you accrue it through your mistakes and your, your, <laughs> your bad falls and, and the way that they heal. So it feels really wonderful to get to be this age, this place doing what I love so much and connecting with people in a way that 11-year-old Barbara never, never imagined in her wildest dreams. Oh, it'd be amazing to be able to kind of time machine. Oh, just to tell her, hang in there. It's going to get so much better. It's going to get so (laughs) amazing. So amazing. Can I just quickly ask you the questions that I always ask sure, at the end? Sure, sure. What's your emotional age? I think it's 68. I think it is too. You're in a good place, aren't you? Yeah, and it took this long to get here. Could you give us a book recommendation? So it could be a book that you've loved your whole life or it could just be something great that you've read recently. A book that, that was unusual for me to read and that I loved and I think everybody should read is The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. Do you know his work? Do you um, know the book? I do because my husband writes SF. Okay. But if you don't like SF, you will not have considered it. Not have considered it. And I'm not not a science fiction reader, generally speaking. I love Ursula Le Guin. There are, you know, there are certainly... But generally speaking, I like literature that's literary and that's anchored in real things. And this book really is. Um, And it's about climate change. It's set in the nearish future. I really recommend it. It's the first book I've read in years about climate change that left me feeling hopeful. Oh. Yeah. That's why you should read it. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to hunt it down. Okay. Um, What advice would you give younger women? Please worry less about what other people think of you. They probably aren't thinking of you nearly as much as you are. Let it go. How old were you, do you think, when you learned that yourself? I've learned it a little better in a different way with each decade of life. And for exactly that reason, each decade of life has gotten better. Brilliant. Is there an older woman who's inspired you or who inspires you now? There are several. I didn't win the jackpot in the mothering department, but two, two, two women came into my life as mothers and meant everything to me. One was my literary agent, Frances Golden, whom I found right in the beginning. It was to her that I sent my first manuscript I send it because her entry, you know, in the literary marketplace describing her agency was, 
we do not represent any work that is sexist, racist, ageist, homophobic, or gratuitously violent. I realize this cuts me out of most of what's written, but I can be proud of all my authors. Well, a woman. That was her entry. And so I said, well, if there's an agent for me, she is it. So I sent her my manuscript. She loved it. She placed it. She fiercely protected me financially, ethically, you know, morally. And even just, I mean, she just became my Jewish mother. She took such good care of me. She was the person when, after I had my first child, my marriage instantly fell apart. There was mental illness. There was, you know, it was just like my life fell apart. I was sole supporter of, of a baby trying to make a living as a writer and thinking there's no way I can get through this. And she called me every single night to help me know that I was crossing to a greener shore, that I was going to get through this and that it was worth it to leave, you know, leave this bad marriage and make a life for myself, even if it was scary and hard financially. She was so there for me. When I was on book tour, when I would come to New York, she would bake lasagna and bring it to my hotel room. She made me believe in myself as a writer. And in the dark times, she made me remember that a lot of other people believed in me too. Is she still your agent? Well, she was until she died. She we lost her during the pandemic. She was Aww. she she was in her nineties, so she lived an amazingly good life, but it was a terrible loss. Yeah. yeah. And the other one was my mother in law. I hit the mother in law jackpot. Stephen's mother was also a mother to me and we also lost her during the pandemic. But she was the person who, I mean, I could ask her for advice and she would give me good sound advice, you know, without condescension. She would really think think about it. We could just talk about anything. She sounds amazing. She was. Everybody needs a Francis. Everybody needs life. a Francis. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I mean, the simplest way I have always put it is I didn't win the lottery in the mothering department, but then I did. It's a package, isn't it? You know, there are things. I have terrible ankles. I've broken both my legs twice. Oh, my um, God. <laughs> each of them twice. So I always say I have, I'm a thoroughbred trying to live a Clydesdale life. <laughs> yeah. So I, I break easily. I have this, you know, terrible hand thing, which is why I can't sign books anymore. But, you know, I like the brain. So it's just like you get this package and um, you just embrace it. Does your hand affect your writing? Flat hand is fine. I can't grip Mm. like a pen or or a stamp or anything like that. But I've had six surgeries on this hand to keep it functional. So um, flat hands are fine. And so, yeah, so so typing is fine. Yeah, so I'm lucky. I mean, computer work, that matters. Signing books, I'm sorry, but that's not that important. It's a nice to have. It's not not a need to have. Yeah. Yeah. What's your superpower? Oh, (laughs) packing. Yeah. (laughs) Give me, it really is. I mean, you are here for three weeks. Uh You have done, is this right? A week of back-to-back book events Uh and interviews. You're about to go walking for a week. I'm going and hiking. I have hiking shoes. Yeah, you brought them? hiking shoes. Yeah. And then you've got the Women's Prize. So you've got like la di da Yeah, la di da. Even like a, a formal a gown. On. And it's, it all fits in a carry on. Yeah. How? Yeah. How have you done that? Well, we start with shoes. 
<laughs> and you're really limited. You get two pair of shoes and you really have to think that through. You bring laundry detergent so you can wash things in the sink. And for presentable events, silk. You know, it oh, really yes. compresses and it it doesn't wrinkle. So, so yeah, there are tricks, but mainly you don't need as much as you think you do. That's true. I couldn't believe it, though, when I saw you doing three weeks with a carry-on. That's my rule. I have to fit everything in a carry-on because it's self-sufficiency. I want to be able to, to move through the world with nothing more than I can carry. That's a good ethos. <laughs> um, and I always feel uncomfortable asking this question. And yet, so, you, and yet you do. <laughs> yes, and yet I do, yes. So how many fucks do you give? <laughs> <laughs> um, half a dozen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are days when I don't give one, but there are a lot of things I care about. As evidenced by your fantastic book. Thank you. Thank you for letting me into your hotel room and coming on the shift. I'm so in awe, Barbara. Oh, thank you. Thanks for doing what you do. Oh, and I love Demon so much and buy it. It's really, really good. You won't regret it and buy it for a friend. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Barbara. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like more of The Shift in your life, head over to theshiftwithsambaker.substack.com and sign up for weekly newsletters, podcast extras and more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.